0: Today is December 14th, 2020. Pfizer begins to roll out the COVID-19 vaccine across the United States. Protests erupt in Washington, D.C. over a Biden presidency. And history is made again in college football. Welcome back. Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic show for you here today. Let me tell you, we were working tirelessly day and night all throughout the weekend in order to bring you the best podcast that we have done so far. We're trying to bring all the good stuff to the people, all the stuff from the left, all the stuff from the right, and all that sweet truth that oftentimes lies right there in the middle. We thank you for joining us today. If you are new, a little bit about what we do and who we are here on Split the Difference Podcast. Our goal is to try and bring a little bit of unity and try to bring a little bit of community to the conversation in politics. We see and recognize that everything we're being told is that everything is divisive, that we're more divided than we've ever been. But we don't think that that's necessarily true, and we think that there can oftentimes be a solid middle ground where you can acknowledge both the good and the bad on both sides of the aisle and find that good truth that lies in the middle we do our best here to always remain level-headed, always to remain reasonable, and to do our best to split the difference. So if that's something that you're interested in, please come along with us as we hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, Pfizer starts to ship out COVID-19 vaccines throughout the United States. So the first trucks left the Pfizer facility, the Pfizer plant in Michigan heading out to 636 predetermined locations. Uh, They're estimated to deliver about 2.9, almost 3 million doses uh, throughout the course of this week, uh, throughout the United States. Uh, The Food and Drug Administration approved emergency use of the vaccine late on Friday night in the United States, allowing for Pfizer to actually start shipping out the vaccine that many people are so anxiously awaiting you as you you know probably know and we talked about earlier in the podcast uh, last late, late, late last week uh the UK has already approved it for emergency use uh they were kind of the first people to go out and start actually doing vaccinations um In the first round of vaccinations in the United Kingdom, about 800,000 people have already been vaccinated. And so far, there have only been two people, it was two healthcare workers, that had allergic reactions to the vaccines. Nothing more serious than that. Both of them, I think, are in stable condition or doing totally fine. Both of them also had a history of allergies and had a history of being allergic to things that were actually contained within the vaccine. So it's not super surprising. So, so far, it's showing a very good efficacy rate. You know, as far as we can tell. Um, In early trials, as we've talked about before, it actually had about a 90 to a 95% efficacy or inoculation rate. So it's looking like this vaccine is actually going to work very, very well, which is incredible because they put it all together in less than a year, which is just mind blowing. So, the United States will do a pretty similar rollout to what the UK did, uh, getting to the vac- getting the vaccine to the riskiest populations first. Uh, this includes senior care facilities like nursing homes, stuff like that, and healthcare workers primarily. Uh, they haven't announced or sent out what exactly will go into the second phase of the rollout, who will be involved in the second phase of the rollout. Uh, we're able to see that the UK has already you know, laid out that they're going to basically hit all the healthcare workers and the oldest of their population first, and then just slowly but surely start to go down age brackets from there. The United States may do something similarly, although I think that there's probably some talks around trying to inoculate or get vaccines to people that may not be within the 70s to 80s, 80 year old range, but have a lot of pre-existing conditions that would make them much more susceptible to the virus. So maybe if you are 45 or 50 years old, but you have a lot of pre-existing conditions, you may be able to get in line before somebody else that's 40, 50, 55 years old, but is otherwise very, very healthy. So at this point, widespread availability of the vaccine is expected for all Americans around Maybe mid to late spring of 2021, somewhere in there, uh, they're saying that insurers are expected to pay for the vaccine completely, and the government will have a separate pool of funds to help people that are currently uninsured be able to get the vaccine. So that's good. It's not like it's going to be you know some kind of two thousand dollar vaccine, and insurance companies aren't going to pay for it or something like that. Hopefully, everyone in America will have the opportunity to be able to get vaccinated eventually. Um, so oddly enough, and we've talked about this a little bit on the po- podcast, but it's become quite a big story right now. Uh, NBC News did a really, really big story about basically all these hospital workers and hospital directors, and especially more rural counties in America, how they're having, are going to have an, an extremely difficult time actually convincing Americans to get the vaccine. So one of the biggest problems, and like I said, especially in rural America, is that people don't trust it right? They don't trust uh, all the misinformation that's been rolled out. They feel like the government itself has not done a great job of organizing and having a good cohesive message around what COVID-19 actually does, what it actually is. And a lot of people don't trust vaccinations, especially not one that was made in less than a year. Um, So many rural hospitals are, you know, trying to figure out how exactly they're going to be able to bring this vaccine to the people and actually convince people to take the vaccine. Uh, Many of them are going to, from a lot of the articles that I've read, have shown that they're going to like open up zoom calls and live broadcast inoculating a lot of the staff and a lot of the nurses and doctors there. So they're going to have all the people that are, would be administering the vaccine, actually taking the vaccine live and on video and displaying that and sending that out to their communities so that their communities can see, you know, doctors and nurses getting a vaccine. And then hopefully look at that and be like, all right, well, if they're getting it, I can probably get it too. It looks like it's safe. You know, I, as much as I may mistrust a lot of what's going on right now, it looks like if they're getting it, then I can probably, you know, do the exact same thing. Um, Hopefully that will happen. I think honestly, it's one of those things that is going to happen a little bit slower than we would like for it to. I would be very surprised to see extremely long lines wrapped around DHEC down here in South Carolina uh, or in Columbia. That you know, just lines wrapped around it with all these people that are just can't wait to be able to get a vaccine. A lot of people are very weary of this, not only because it's a short time frame, but because of the amount of misinformation that's been pushed out, and because the vast majority of the people are receiving news about the COVID-19 vaccine from institutions that they don't necessarily trust. So this gets into really kind of the biggest story around this vaccination here in America is that we're now seeing one of the clearest impacts of what happens when an entire population totally loses trust in the institution that, that, that is expected to bring them news. It's starting, like, I think the media as a whole is really starting to reap what it's sown over the past 15 to 20 years in, uh, you know, a lot of this clickbait journalism where they've done pretty much anything and everything that they can to have a very, very clear bias to attack people, sometimes without facts, publish stories, uh, push cancel culture. Uh, A lot of this stuff that the media has done that oftentimes is extremely left-leaning is really, really coming back to bite them right now. And, And not just the media, but the entire population as a whole. The way that the media especially polarized and really politicized the entirety of this whole coronavirus pandemic has been incredibly awful to see, but now you're really starting to see how awful it's going to get because people don't trust the media so much that they are looking at it and they're saying, well, CNN and CBS and MSNBC are all telling me that I have to get the coronavirus vaccine. That makes me very weary because I don't trust any of them as an institution as a whole. Um, it's not necessarily like America's distrust and pretty much everything the mainstream media says is not the fault of the American people. And it also is not Donald Trump's fault. Yes, he has exacerbated this. Exacerbated this, I mean, far beyond where it was four years ago, for sure, right? But the media's all out attack on Donald Trump when half of the country supports Donald Trump, half the country voted for him, half the country supports a lot of the things that he's done and said. When the media have attacked him the way that they have over the past four years, a lot of people are looking at them and they're being like, well, I don't trust anything that you have to say now. Um, it's the fault of you know, the American media system why Americans don't trust the media. Uh, when you work tirelessly to get more clicks and more viewership, above holding, you know, your reporters accountable, holding the people that are doing the investigative journalism accountable to make sure that facts are pushed through, to make sure that uh, there isn't extreme bias outside of the opinion section of newspapers, then you're going to have people that don't trust what you say. It's just an unfortunate point in time that we found ourselves in now where we now need for the American people to take this vaccine. It has been proven or tested to be safe And now American people aren't going to want to do it because they don't trust the people that are telling them that they have to get it. So I saw a poll last week, and I said this on last week's podcast as well, last Friday, I believe. Uh, Right now, it's looking like somewhere around 50% of American people say that they don't or wouldn't want to get the vaccine. It continues to go up. And the more that the media report on it, the more that the media bash Trump, the more that the media bash the entirety of the conservative side of the aisle, saying that they're stupid, saying that they haven't, you know, believed in the coronavirus or saying that they think it's all a hoax, the worse that it's getting. So at the end of the day, I think the media have nobody here to blame but themselves. Um, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of unbiased and solid reporting happening on either side of the aisle the entire year around the entirety of this uh, you know, coronavirus pandemic. And it's unfortunate because I think you're going to see a very, very, very slow inoculation process in the United States, especially because of people's total mistrust of the entirety of the media institution as a whole. Uh, everybody's going to their own specific media sources, and that's okay. That's what's going to happen. But if you are claiming to be a a news outlet like a CNN or a CBS or an NPR or something like that, then you can't overtly attack the right side of the aisle, and then expect the right side of the aisle to listen to you when you say that they've got to go and do something. That's just not how it works. So. With all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our second story of the day, story number two. So for our second story of the day, protests erupt in Washington, D.C., claiming that Donald Trump actually won the election. So this was the second, I believe the second million MAGA march, which I already went through on a separate podcast talking about how just overtly racist that sounds. But anyways, contrary to what all of the Republicans have been saying, that protesting wouldn't happen if Trump lost, uh, there have been protests. It is (laughs) honestly... The amount of Republican friends and family that I had that were like, you know, before the election happened, well, if, you know, Biden wins, you're not going to see any Republicans out uh, protesting in the streets, but the Democrats and all the liberals, all they want to do is go out and protest. I don't, it's like they don't even have jobs. All they want to do is go out there and just protest in the streets and they want to just get angry and burn stuff down. And they're just so violent and all this stuff. Well, this past weekend, there was a large protest for Donald Trump. And just like the last million mag march, it resorted in a whole bunch of violence, people getting stabbed, a bunch of people getting hurt, a whole bunch of people getting arrested. So, um, All of that, honestly, is just par for the course at this point. So let's hop in real quick and take a look at uh, what CBS Evening Evening News did a uh, quick report on it about a day or so ago. It was billed the Million MAGA March. Today, thousands of President Trump supporters gathered in the nation's capital, many of them refusing to accept that President-elect Joe Biden won the election. CBS's Jeff Pegues was in the crowd. Today, President Trump supporters... We demand the truth. INCLUDING THE RECENTLY PARDONED FORMER NATIONAL SECURITY ADVISER MICHAEL FLYNN. THE COURTS DO NOT DECIDE WHO THE NEXT PRESIDENT OF THE UNITED STATES OF AMERICA WILL BE. WE THE PEOPLE DECIDE. THIS IS THE PRESIDENT'S LOYAL BASE. Not only do they still believe in him. You still believe he won? Absolutely. no No doubt. They also believe, without presenting evidence, that he was robbed of an election victory. They felt that the Supreme Court should at least heard the case. Among the protesters today, this group of proud boys, they say they're anticipating about 700 people here and the possibility of clashes with other groups. Okay, so that's a little bit of reporting, obviously pretty biased reporting there by CVS. <laughs> they didn't say one thing that was even slightly positive about those people that were protesting. But um, yeah, so a whole bunch of people are protesting in Washington, D.C. Um, all of this, you know, coming after the Supreme Court, uh, I, think, I believe it was late last week, refused to listen or a- allow uh, arguments or complaints to be filed by the Trump team, well, in Texas. It really was the Texas state government or attorney general that uh, brought a case and sent a case forward to the Supreme Court um, this is leading you know this is pretty much the latest and probably the greatest blow uh, to the Trump e- legal efforts to try and overturn or prove a lot of election fraud the courts' action uh, t- courts action came in a one-page order which said that the complaint was denied for quote lack of standing uh, the case was brought by Texas against other states so I believe they sued like Pennsylvania and a couple other states uh, claiming that pretty, they pretty much didn't do what they should have done. And as a result, the election was fraudulent. There were a bunch of a fraudulent votes that were counted and Donald Trump lost the election as a result of it. So, um, even justices, uh, Samuel Alito and, uh, Clarence Thomas said that they would, they would have allowed the filing of the complaint. So at this point they are not even allowing the f- complaint to be filed, but, um, Alito and Thomas said that they would allow the filing of the complaint, but they would not have given Texas or Trump any of the relief that they sought. So, these are by far the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Like Clarence Thomas is, I mean, like, he is the dude for conservatives wanting, you know, somebody that's a little bit more conservative and right leaning on the Supreme Court. Um, And they're even saying that the argument was extremely fragile brought to them by Texas. Um, They didn't even want the complaint, they didn't even allow the complaint to be filed. So, it doesn't necessarily look very good for the Trump legal team in that regard, especially from the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court isn't going to allow you to file your complaint, and, uh, you know, rights, right Republicans right side of the aisle not allowed, you know, saying that their complaints and the stuff that they're filing don't really hold any water, then it looks like you pretty much don't have a good argument there. So, um, as a result, Republicans took to the streets. I honestly think this is pretty hilarious because of how much the Republicans have been ripping on the left side of the aisle, for all of the protests, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but some Republicans in different governors and in different states have even gone as far as to put limits on protests in their states and actually you know, create new laws that would limit some of the protesting in their states that was happening around the George Floyd protests that was happening around racial racial injustice in America earlier in the year that was primarily focused on and held by people on the left side of the aisle. So the governor in Tennessee signed a bill earlier this year that makes it a felony for people to camp outside on government property. Basically what they were seeing is that there were months long protests that were happening in the wake of a couple of different police uh, shooting of black people throughout the year. And people were protesting and staying outside on government property for very, very long extended periods of time, holding up signs, picketing and protesting what they believed was incredible racial injustice the punishment would then keep people from voting in the elections. So in Tennessee, if you are caught camping on government property overnight during a protest, you are charged with a felony. And if you are charged with a felony, you are not illegally allowed to vote in their elections. Pretty incredible stuff. Um, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis wants to create Several new criminal offenses, uh, including prosecuting, quote, anyone who organizes or funds a violent or disorderly assembly under the state's Anti-Racketeering acts. The idea by Governor DeSantis would basically be, If you help to organize a protest, that protest then results in any sort of violence. Those people could then be charged under the law for organizing that protest. Uh, In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott uh, proposed six new criminal offenses aimed at people who would, quote, hijack peaceful protests, including one that outlines aiding and abetting riots with funds or organizational assistance. He said, quote, some people participate in riots without ever being there. What they do is they aid and they abet riots with funds or organizational assistance. This will be a felony that will lead to jail time. The idea behind that being, if you help to fund or organize any type of protest that then results in rioting, that then results in any type of violence, then you could actually be held accountable under the law and charged with a felony just for supporting or providing money or aid to the people that organize the protests. So after all of these months of the left side of the aisle, doing the majority of the protesting and all of the Republicans saying that it was terrible, that all of it was resulting in violence, um, that even if you had Ben Shapiro has a very, has a famous quote out there that was basically like, you know, cause there was a whole bunch of stuff that was coming out. Well, 93% of the protests were completely nonviolent and only 7% of the protests resulted in any sort of violence. So they were mostly peaceful protests. Well, Ben Shapiro came out and he had a famous quote of saying, well, O.J. Simpson was mostly nonviolent on the night that he killed those people. <laughs> Obviously alluding to the fact that O.J. Simpson wasn't killing people all night long, but you know, he just had a couple of a brief moments throughout the night where he actually did the murdering. So you can't say that O.J. Simpson is a mostly peaceful you know, person that night. So uh, now the shoe is on the other foot. Right, it looks like the Republicans are the ones that are out doing a whole bunch of protesting right now, and I don't hear any Republicans that are calling them to stop the protesting, and I don't hear any people on the right side of the aisle that are calling for stops of violence against the protests and stuff that are uh, that's obviously going on right now in Washington D.C. And with the shoe on the other foot, I'm really, really interested to see if all of a sudden you start seeing you know those same governor uh, Republican governors starting to actually try people or maybe you know prosecute people that are you know going out and protesting that eventually return to riots or eventually turn to violence. So this is a fantastic example of why you should never rip on the other side of the aisle for doing something that you eventually would like the privilege of doing. American politics is now becoming absolutely famous for this, right? So we're, we, as the right side of the aisle, are allowed to do X, but you are not allowed to do X. Or, you know, hey, we're the Democrats. Republicans, you should stop doing X, but when it comes around to me wanting to do X, I should be able to do it. So later, several Republicans across the country also alluded to wanting to secede from the union because of how the election was handled. All of this just fantastic stuff. Uh, Texas G- uh, GOP Chair Alan West issued a statement saying, quote, perhaps it's time for law abiding states to bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. He actually said that. Absolutely Outrageous. I am all for allowing people to protest. I am all for, whether it's the left side of the aisle protesting stuff that happened with George Floyd, whether it's the right side of the aisle that is protesting wearing masks or is protesting uh, the the election and saying that there was fraud and there was interference. Both of them have the right to protest as long as it is peaceful. If it's not peaceful, obviously the police and the government should step in and arrest those and hold accountable those that are causing violence. Absolutely agree with that. The fact that we are now having prominent members within the GOP step up and allude to seceding from the union is absolutely outrageous. Those people should immediately be called out by the Republican Party and should immediately be removed from GOP ranks. There is no reason at all why these people should be standing up and calling for secession. Absolutely terrible. Um, I'm legitimately blown away because I, I... if there's anything that I feel like the, the Republican Party and the conservatives have held on to for a very, very long time, it's the solidarity of the union, the freedom of speech, the freedom to protest, the freedom to be able to go out, peacefully say what it is that you believe, regardless of how outrageous it is. And now you have the GOP standing up and saying a bunch of ridiculous stuff. Um, so obviously that's something that I'm passionate about because I don't think the state should secede from the union. Believe it or not, um, I think that it's ridiculous that the, any GOP leadership would call for that at all. You know, I, you know. At the end of the day, I think that Alan West should immediately be called out by the GOP and even removed from leadership for some saying for saying some stuff like that. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we'll have to see how a lot of these protests start to work out. What ends up happening? Hopefully, they continue to dwindle out. Uh, I th- you know the. Electoral College is set to vote here in the next day or so. Actually, I maybe even believe today. Um, so once that is done, hopefully all of this will start to be put to, completely put to bed and we'll be able to actually move on with our lives and kind of start planning for what it's going to look like over the next four years with a Biden presidency. So with all of that having been said, let's move on into our third story of the day, story number three. So, uh, a Vanderbilt female kicker made some history this week. So, this story is actually pretty cool. Um, Sarah Fuller, she's a kicker on Vanderbilt that is also a woman, uh, kicked a field goal in a game on Saturday. She was the first woman to actually score a point in a Power Five football game. There have been other women that have kicked field goals, that have scored points in other uh, D1 football games and in, in AIA football games as well. Um, but they actually haven't done it in a Power Five, uh, one of the Power Five conferences. So. If you don't know what college football is or you don't really follow college football very much, Power Five Conference is basically the big five conferences that hold the vast majority of the large schools that do very, very well in college football every year. Most of the time have the most difficult games. Um, Pretty big deal to have a female that comes out there, you know, kicks a field goal, scores a point. So here is a quick look at the video now um, and kind of what went down. Now, she can be the first to make an extra point at the Power 5 level. Right through there. More history on display for the Vanderbilt Commodores and Sarah Fuller. How about that celebration with her teammates? Okay, so um, this is pretty cool, especially because all of her teammates came up. We're congratulating her, like, you know, giving her a high fives, smacking her on the helmet, doing all that fun stuff. Um, however, it's kind of, I will admit, I'm somewhat frustrated about this, okay? And maybe it's rightfully so, maybe not. But if you followed any college football or anything that was happening in the media last week, last week, Sarah Fuller did, you know, a, did a kickoff to start the second half for Vanderbilt, Okay the media blew up about it, right? Like she, this is the first woman to ever play in a power five football game. Like she's crushing it. She's incredible. She's the hero that we all needed on the women's side of the aisle or not for, for women across the country. Um, I mean the entirety of the media landscape just absolutely exploded because she did a kickoff last week. Unfortunately, a lot of it was extremely overblown. It was totally overdone because the kick was not impressive. It just objectively, it just wasn't. And that's not bagging on Sarah Fuller necessarily. I guarantee you that she can probably kick, you know, boot the ball all the way down the field. She looks like, and she is a phenomenal athlete, right? I'm sure she can probably get the football all the way down the field. But she just did like this little 25-yard squib kick you know, it barely, barely went anywhere. And as a result, the entirety of especially the more conservative side of the aisle just started crapping all over the story, right? Like just started berating all of these people that are pushing this. And it's because there was a lot of like this faux sincerity on the left side of the aisle that was like, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in college sports. And I, that's not necessarily true, right? I think that we absolutely should celebrate this because this is pretty awesome, right? Like, she's putting points on the board. Like, she's a member of the team. She's working hard, just as hard as all the other guys that are out there. She's doing well. But, like, the fact that they kind of – the left-wing media kind of, like, shot all their bullets last week. They named her the SEC Special Teams Player of the Week. Like, they they really, like, blew it out of the water. And what she did wasn't nearly as impressive as what she did this Saturday, right? Like – I don't know, it kind of was frustrating to me, and I'm kind of like, you know, now is when we should, like, really be celebrating, or, you know, the media really has an opportunity to be like, all right, she's scoring points, she's helping out the team, like, recognize her, make her SEC special, special teams player of the week, whatever, but, like, I think the frustrating thing for a lot of people is looking at it and being like, she did a squib kick in a college football game, and you guys are, like, blowing this out of proportion in a lot of ways, so, um, at the end of the day, though, I think this is pretty awesome. And there's no problem at all with people celebrating either what happened last week or what happened this week in college football because it's pretty cool that we have a woman that is out on the field with a whole bunch in a definitely a old boys club, right? Football is notoriously, you know, extremely tough sport. It's a lot of testosterone going in that locker room. And you have a woman that gets out on the field and drills a field goal. That's awesome. I'm honestly, though, kind of looking forward to a point in time where, like, yes, we can celebrate this or we can be happy about this, but it's kind of old news, you know, where it's like you have plenty of female place kickers that get up there and crush it every single week. I think that'd pretty be pretty awesome. I guarantee you there's, I know I played high school soccer with a whole bunch of girls that could have easily been place kickers and probably crushed it. So um, all the people crapping on her accomplishments, that's a little bit ridiculous. I do kind of wish though that they would have saved up a lot of this hoopla and everything for this week when she legitimately did, you know, kick a pretty solid extra point. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's all good. I'm glad that that happened. Awesome accomplishment for her. Definitely hope that she continues to play and I hope that more women get involved in football if they're good enough and, you know, they're able to get out there and play and, you know, help their team, help the school teams out just as much as anybody else on the field. So with all that having been said, that's the end of our third story for the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment of the day. My favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile over the past couple days, really, I guess, over the past week is actually a new book that I'm reading. Yes, I'm going to go ahead and nerd out, but it's because I think a lot of you may enjoy this book as well. So the name of the book is Glass House, The 1% Economy and Shattering of the American Town. It's by Brian Alexander. In the entirety of the story, uh, in the book, kind of centers around this town, Lancaster, Ohio. It maybe could pronounce Lancaster, Ohio. I'm not totally sure, but we call it Lancaster, South Carolina with our redneck southern twang. And I don't know how to pronounce any other type of Lancaster. So um, it's out of Lancaster, Ohio. Um, it is uh, The whole story is basically around a-, a town that is pretty much completely dilapidated at this point in time. And looking at why and how that happened, uh, this specific town in Ohio was named by Forbes, I believe in like the late 50s or early 60s, like the picturesque perfect definition of the American town, like the town that perfectly ex- like exemplifies the American dream. And it has gone downhill terribly over the past 40 to 50 years. A lot of it is because of, uh, like, it was a a heavily manufacturing town. Um, It was very, very centered around a couple of big manufacturing plants, and those, for the most part, have gone overseas or have gone other places. And as a result, the town has just kind of dwindled down into, you know, incredibly heavy uh, drug use, very, very poorly educated citizens. Like, it's just not, it's a very, very difficult place to live now. And the book is incredibly interesting. Um, oddly enough, it gives a very uh, it gives a solid argument against a lot more of like the Reaganomics and the Milton Friedman more laissez-faire libertarian side of economics, um, which I don't necessarily ascribe to. I actually do lean a little bit more libertarian, a little bit more on that like Thomas Sowell, um and Milton Friedman side of economic policy. Just admittedly, I'm a little bit more conservative on that side of the aisle uh, for economic policy, but it's difficult to find, and there are not a lot of good arguments against that type of economic policy that I've been able to find. But this does a very, very good job of really kind of poking holes in a lot of that Friedman doctrine around the laissez faire type of like fiscal and monetary policy, which I think is really, really, really interesting, even if I don't necessarily agree with all of it in its intricacies. It's really cool. So, the name of that book is Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the American Town by Brian Alexander. Totally should go and check it out, pick it up on audiobook or something like that. It's a really, really cool read, kind of is broadening my perspective and opening up my mind a little bit about um, a lot of the different ways that, you know, a lot of the Republican policy that was put in place and economic policy over the past 30 or 40 years may not have been nearly as beneficial as a lot of people have, you know, said that it would be. So, Really cool. Definitely check it out if you get the chance. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our show for today. Thank you so much for stopping in, for checking us out. Remember, as always, to look me up on all the different social media platforms. I'm on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook at Split the Difference and YouTube at Split the Difference as well. Go ahead, drop me a like, drop me a subscribe, give me a five-star review. All of those things go such a long way. Thank you so much for stopping in and joining us today. Remember, as always, we're going to do our best to keep a level head, to remain reasonable, and to always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.